Welcome to Word on the Street, a weekly podcast from Barclays UK, where our experts help ordinary investors make sense of the latest news and events impacting the world's financial markets. For this episode, we diagnose what many are calling the most consequential US election in living memory. With Nikki Eggers, Head of Investments, Will Hobbs, Chief Investment Officer, and Christian Keller, Chief Economist for Barclays Investment Bank. Hello, welcome to this week's Word on the Street. So I guess you know the word tumultuous has, has come up quite a bit in this podcast in the past, but um, this week really is competing to potentially break all sorts of records, perhaps on use of that word. We'll obviously be looking at the aftermath of, of the US election day, albeit at time of recording, it's not over and I doubt it will be um, perhaps even even for days and weeks. But we'll try and assess Trump's time in office from the perspective of the economy and the capital markets. And we'll also try to look forward at what could be coming if we have a likely Biden administration. So to do all of that, we have Will, as usual, our CIO. But we're also uh, joined this week by Christian Keller, who's chief economist for Barclays Investment Bank. And Christian, you also used to work at the International Monetary Fund, so proper grown-up. So thank you very much for joining us. It's great to have you with us. So with no further ado, let's let's start off with a little bit of a pricey will on what's been going on. Well, Nikki, hello, Nikki, and hello, Christian. So I'm literally just looking at my screen now, and as you rightly pointed out, there is still no declared winner in the US elections. Betting markets, like you say, have Joe Biden as firm favorites. Uh, we've still got kind of Arizona, Georgia, North Carolina, Nevada, and Pennsylvania. They're all still in play at the moment. If Biden does win the race for the, uh, sorry, if he does win the race for the Oval Office, he is highly unlikely uh, on current thinking to enjoy a unified Congress. Uh, the Democrats do still have a path to a majority in the Senate, but it's pretty narrow to say the least. So, so all still a little bit up in the air in truth, Nikki. Yeah. So, okay. Assuming perhaps that we end up with with Biden in the Oval Office from, and it'll be the beginning of next year that that would happen, with a divided Congress, the Senate's still in Republican hands, and the House of Representatives is is remaining with the Democrats. Christian, what what would you see as the likely policy priorities with that kind of context? Well, first, uh, thanks for having me, Nikki and, and Will. I'm, I'm happy to be on this. Um, now, I think this priority will have simply they will have to adjust to the reality of the situation. And in other words, uh, it will be driven what he can realistically implement and not what he may in principle want to do. And many of the topics that may have played a big role during the campaign uh, are probably unlikely to be implemented in the way that they would have been if there had been a what we call a progressive blue wave where Democrats had, say, like 40 sorry, 54 seats or so in the Senate. And, um, you know, so the ideas about radical tax reform, you know, large tax increases for corporates and the wealthy, fundamental revamp of the healthcare system, you know, very large fiscal spending on COVID relief, uh, with emphasis on states and municipality finance, these things are much less likely uh, to happen now. Uh, You know, what this re-election seems to have showed is an, an empowerment of the moderates on both sides, if you want. And they will try to find common ground. So what is that common ground likely to, to be and, and where, therefore, will the priorities be? And I think, first of all, it will be some form of fiscal uh, stimulus. There will be some COVID relief, uh, maybe not the two to three trillion packages people had envisaged under you know, a big blue wave, 
but but we still think 500 billion to a trillion is is likely to come through in the in the coming month um we must not not forget that you know some of these republican house representatives they're facing re-election in 2020 they probably don't want to be seen you know as having blocked something that you know the people really needed in, in this time of uh, you know of of a, of a covid um, driven recession and uh, you know I, I would also say that um, infrastructure is something where you know both democrats and and republicans uh, seem to have preferences and you know they have different views on it where exactly to spend it and and how to finance it but it seems exactly one of these items where someone like biden with a lot of experience in senate in the house with a with a you know over 40 years experience of you know cutting deals uh, uh, you know, with, with 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 the Senate and the House, that he would be able to push some something through on on infrastructure. So I think uh, a more moderate COVID relief infrastructure; those will be the priorities, and a lot less on on any of the other more progressive ideas. If you allow me, I would say one other important point because what I just mentioned were the you know the big domestic policy decisions, and they they are very important. Uh, but you know where a president, a U.S. president, can use a lot of his, his executive power is to formulate foreign policy and trade policy, and this is where Trump has indeed done a lot in the in the last uh, four years. And we've seen some very radical changes with regard to NATO, uh, transatlantic relationships towards the EU in particular. Uh, you know the international deals with Iran, Paris climate deal, the attitudes to the WTO and multilateral organizations. You know this is where. Trump used his executive power to kind of move away from what had been decades-long U.S. policy. We believe that this is where where Biden uh, is almost diametrically opposed to what Trump stood for, and we he would probably spend, uh, in, particularly in the beginning of of his potential presidency, you know, time to reassure traditional allies that you know the U.S. is there to to fulfill their international commitments and and you know wants to get back into multilateralism, etc. So this will be, I think, an important part of, of Biden's priorities if he was to become president. And well, I guess that's probably why we saw quite a bit of the air come out of bond deals over the course of Wednesday as this was starting to unpack. Yeah, Nikki, um, that's that's right. I mean, essentially bond investors, you know, people lending to the US government was starting to anticipate, you know, that very sizable and primarily you know, deficit-funded spending program that, that Christian talked about that would come with, um, you know, a Joe Biden presidency backed by a blue Congress. You know, and Christian mentioned some of the things that he had, you know, that, that people were talking about with only some of the spending plans kind of set to be recouped by planned tax rises. Now, as normally happens, those lending to the government anticipated this uh, this spending splurge by demanding a bit more in compensation, a higher interest rate. Now, as expectations of the blue wave were, you know, faded, that demand uh, for you know extra compensation faded with it. Yeah, but just take a step back, Will. I, I mean, I guess we've heard you and the team talk a bit about how we can somewhat overstate the influence of politics on the trend rate of growth of economies. And, and it is, after all, trend growth that really matters for our longer term investors, for our clients. Yeah, that's correct. I think you know, in terms of the sort of trend growth and how it translates into you know asset prices and so on. And I guess some of this idea comes from a paper 
from a couple of couple of years back um, from a couple of Princeton academics. I think it was in 2016, uh, and they were looking at why, when you look back at the full panorama of U.S. economic performance under various presidents, uh, I think they go from Truman's uh, first term to uh, Obama's first term. Why it seems like even when you correct for kind of lagged economic momentum, so economic momentum momentum that spills over from one presidency into the next, it seems like. Democrat, the U.S. economy seems to perform a lot better under Democrat presidents than it does under, Republic, under Republican presidents, substantially better, in fact. Well, what they find, uh, which was quite interesting, uh, was that uh, a lot of the difference can be explained by factors outside of presidential control, so oil shocks, you know, international growth, mm-hmm. uh, you know, changes in international growth patterns, and so on. There are also, you know, a number of other studies that look at the relationship between marginal tax rates and ensuing growth uh, in the economy, uh, and they similarly find that there doesn't seem to be uh, much relationship uh, between the two. So, you know, which is a little bit surprising, uh, depending on your political philosophy. But there you go. So, yeah, that, that's the sort of core of the idea, I guess. And Christian, I mean, surely it's a little bit different right now. I mean, there's an, there's an element of sliding doors here. If, if say, the Democrats had, had managed to secure Congress, we would have seen perhaps a real change in in the sort of fiscal posture from the US government, which which might have resulted in quite a markedly different economic outlook versus the one that perhaps we're describing as as the more likely outlook. Uh, Yes and no. I I would say if we look at what we consider the economic outlook and we look at it a bit beyond just GDP trend growth, what you could do with fiscal policy, what you can do is obviously you can influence the cycle. So if you start to spend you know, large amounts and you finance them and you're able to finance them in a very low interest environment, there's almost no doubt that immediately it will have some impact on growth if it's not completely offset by you know, the private sector acting, uh, you know, offsetting it. Secondly, you know, it can also have large distributional outcomes. That, that's part of an economic outcome, not only growth, but you know, where, uh, you know, where wealth is being distributed, income differences, et cetera. And over the longer term, that could also then have an impact in a way how growth develops. Now, I would agree, however, that uh, if we look at long-term growth trends, they are to a large extent outside of the control of you know, political, political you know, setups, in particular when we think of these four-year cycles. Uh, you know, I think they more have to do with you know, how is a, an economy and a society set up because it's about Typically, it's about productivity growth, uh, you know, where trend growth is. You know, if it's on the one hand, it's demographics. But if you look at GDP per capita, it's ultimately what is the productivity growth in an economy? And that, you know, has to do with the setup in terms of, you know, having the right legal setup that creates, a, a, you know, a good environment uh, for innovation. But often technology is very difficult to project, uh, to, to forecast. You know, we often, we have a hard time to actually forecast when these technology breakthroughs happen and when you know, certain new invention turn into you know, wider you know, general purpose uh, technologies that then show themselves in, in high growth rates, which we had, for example, in the 90s. Uh, and then suddenly in the beginning of the 2000s, you know, that stopped and we had low productivity growth since. But it not really goes with a you know, four-year cycle of, of politics that we have in our electoral system. Yeah, that sounds reasonable, right? I, I follow your logic, but but so looking back over over the Trump years and 
question mark thus far. We'll see what happens. But to what extent would you say, Christian, his his reputation among voters as you know the president that was good for the economy? You know, to what degree is that deserved? I mean, he he surely inherited an economy that that had begun to build a bit of momentum through certainly the the second half of 2016, if if the data are to be believed. Yeah, I think uh, that that is certainly true. We had a we had a, a, a strong momentum, and that had to do with a lot of had to do also with the you know China in a way really uh, boosting its own growth, and that gave a, a global uplift of the economy. But I think we do have to say that a lot of this was taken up then by the U.S. and it was boosted by policies that President Trump implemented, and and these were I think two crucial policies: tax cuts and deregulation. And equity markets love this. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a very simple formula. You, you deregulate, you take away a lot of the costs that, for example, energy companies have, and then they're all in the stock index. And tax cuts automatically boost uh, the dividends that companies can return, and that boosts the stock market. And while you may say, well, that was a stock market, but we didn't see it really in growth, and admittedly, growth rates themselves weren't very high. But what we did see, and that may actually have created that perception also in the wider population, we saw a steadily falling unemployment rate. And, uh, you know, at the lowest unemployment was at three and a half percent or so. Uh, That is, you know, a a very low rate. It also created increased participation and uh, also then led to the re-inclusion into the labor market of of minority groups, blacks, Hispanics, etc. So I think this is something that Trump can claim he contrib- his policy contributed to. You can then ask the question how sustainable that had been. Deregulation, in particular with regard to the environment, didn't come at, at zero costs. Uh, you know, it does come at cost to the environment. The tax cuts over time may have actually would have increased uh, or will increase um, unequal distribution, even if it brings a lot of people back into the labor market. So these are questions that remain. But if you just look at the track record of the last four years, it is true that we had, until COVID, a robust performance of the economy and a very robust performance of the labor market. And Will, what are your views here? I mean, stock market-wise, would you sort of concur with those that that, that would would say that the, the bull market in stocks was was very much linked to those policies and, and President Trump's activities? Well, as Christine highlights, Nikki, I mean, it's, it's a very complicated picture. I mean, personally, I'm always a bit wary of analysis that links any president to directly with stock market performance, good or bad. Christian alluded to the fact that there was a bit of a, a sort of global growth upgrade in uh, in motion at the start of his time. Actually, you know, if you look back, you know, to early 2016, that represented one of the sort of peaks in pessimism uh, in the last cycle with regards to the prospects for global growth. And what you found at the beginning of 2016, or sort of halfway through 2016, you know, there's a change of tone in the forecasting com- uh, community. It comes about for a number of reasons, most of them totally outside of the sphere uh, of the influence of either President Trump or indeed his predecessor. In fact, if you, if you look at the MSCI All Countries World, it doesn't just focus on the US, but takes in you know all of the world's stock markets. Uh, and you can see quite clearly it sort of bottoming uh, in the February of 2016, a long time before the president was considered, you know, President Trump was considered likely to make it into the Oval Office. 
you know, the reality is that stock markets rise in aggregate over most presidential terms. That's um, that's because the U.S. and world economy is uh, simply much more likely to grow than not in any one year. But uh, you know, as Christian points out, there there were some factors which did help uh, the stock market during President Trump's first term. That's uh, that's that's for sure. So just just coming to your point about you know we've looked back. Let's let's look forward. We've we've talked a little bit about where politics fits in, but. With all the other factors that that you have to consider, Christian, you know, thinking about the pandemic that, of course, we're 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 still fighting um, the healthcare response, looking forward, hopefully, to vaccines, better treatments. But right now, more lockdowns, weighing all of that up. What what are your current expectations for for the U.S. and and the global economies for for the year ahead, Christian? I think you mentioned something very important, and that is, uh, you know, healthcare response and vaccines. Because at the moment, we all uh, very much are uh, busy with looking at, uh, you know, the election and the results and and, and the counting of votes in certain states. Uh, but uh, you know, at the same time, the uh, the COVID is it has continues to spread, and really, that is uh, probably a much bigger deal uh, for uh, the economic outlook than whether we get a few hundred billion more or less in, in fiscal stimulus. And um, I would say globally, we're looking already at a, a different outcomes for different regions. So, so China and I would say Northeast Asia, Korea, Taiwan, they really have gotten through this the best. They were first in, first out, and I would say best out. They already are in positive growth. China, that is, back to their pre-COVID levels, they're leading. On the other hand, you have Europe, which is very likely in the fourth quarter due to uh, uh, new lockdowns going back into negative growth. And in between somewhere, you have the US, where we actually have seen until now quite robust momentum in data, which suggests that actually the fourth quarter should still come up with much slower growth in the third, but still decent growth uh, in positive growth, that is. And, and that gives the US economy definitely a better momentum going in uh, 20 into 21 than, than Europe. But I think what is very crucial is whether the US can actually avoid the type of lockdowns that Europe is seeing and whether Europe and, and other regions can avoid a potential third wave of lockdowns in, uh, in the first quarter. Because it's very likely that we're going to see relaxations over the uh, holiday period in December. And the big question is then, is there a risk that we get a renewed wave of lockdowns in the first quarter? Or will we actually see vaccines be distributed in the first quarter next year? If that is the case, which frankly, that is still our baseline. We are relatively constructive on having vaccines approved by the end of this year and then distributing or distribution starting in the first quarter. I think then the outlook for next year is actually quite okay because we have a lot of savings by private households and the private sector, which has uh, received a lot of fiscal support. And a lot of this was saved. In the US, we estimate up to 5% of GDP excess savings, which once people look positively forward and see light at the end of the tunnel, i.e. a vaccine or somewhere away where we know we learn how to live with the with COVID-19, that money could be put to work and that actually could uh, create a significant boost to demand in 2021. But we may have to wait for the second half for that. And again, it really depends on the outlook of the pandemic, much more than uh, fiscal packages or any other political change. 
And Will, any any thoughts on what what Christian's just described? It's really interesting. I mean, I, I think just sort of looking at the sort of winners and losers from this. I mean, there's a harsh words to use about sort of at the country level, but you know, thinking about what institutions have equipped countries well um, versus what haven't uh, in order to sort of facilitate the fight against this virus. You know, and what is the relationship between high or low quality institutions and the growth prospects of a particular country? And, and Christian mentioned Korea and Taiwan. They've long been studies in this area, particularly as their growth trajectories diverge sharply from other emerging market economies in the post-war period. And some point to the you know Second World War land re- or post-Second World War land redistribution as central to their success. Others, the absence of oil and other point resources, uh, you know, visionary leadership at the right moments leading to the right industrial policy. But, but whatever, I mean, for us from an investment perspective. And this is obviously, you know, what this podcast is all about, you know, whatever the lesson from all of this, it's a familiar one, which is why would you limit your investments to the UK and UK quoted companies or, you know, any particular country, to be honest, when you have all of this opportunity, dynamism worldwide. And the same, like I say, applies to any country, you know, that diversified approach not only gives you access to the innovation of the wider world, but it also helpfully diversifies your exposure uh, to the idiosyncratic risks of one particular country or another. Uh, And just one final point, because Christian said something really interesting, you know, about the unpredictability of, you know, technological breakthrough. And then remember, this is absolutely key to why you shouldn't think about, you know, timing entry into capital markets with all of your, you know, potential assets. It, the game is really, it, 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 it's, it's simpler than that in a way, more prosaic. It's simply about waiting in sort of sensibly, patiently waiting in sensibly diversified fashion, waiting for those, you know, for the fruits of those technological breakthroughs to flow through to corporate profits. And, you know, we can't guarantee those technological breakthroughs are going to come, you know, come along. There's no guarantees about the future. This year is a great example of that. But history, both near and far, does give us good cause for optimism. And remember, just, you know, final, final, final point, I'm always saying this, but, you know, <laughs> if you, bang on, I can't help it. But, but the, the, you know, the short term stuff, markets are pretty efficient. Most of what we know, fear and hope about the present and near term future is already reasonably accurately incorporated into market prices, or it is being incorporated by the time we read or hear about it. Now, those bits that are not, are what our team of you know tactical asset allocation specialists are constantly scouring the world for. But remember, that's not a part-time job. It's a hunt for extra basis points of performance played by thousands of full-time investors worldwide. It's a highly, highly competitive field. The majority of your returns are going to come from that bit that we just described, which is that sitting around in sensibly diversified fashion, making sure you're not just limited to one country, uh, you know, sitting across asset classes, all those kind of things, and just waiting for the fruits of innovation to come through. So it's all about being patient with plenty of time to watch CNN and (laughs) listen to podcasts and let it all unfold. (laughs) Um, But but we're very grateful, Christian. Thank you so much for joining us and giving us those insights. Very, very helpful. And uh, thank you to all of our listeners and our subscribers and and keep doing it. Keep liking, keep, keep spreading the word. And we'll be back with you next week. All investments can fall as well as rise in value and their past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance. This podcast is not a personal investment recommendation.